Hi, I'm Dr. Dan Gardner, and I talk about traumatic brain injury recovery. And today, I'm pleased to be talking with certified life coach, Brianna Costin. Welcome, Brianna. Traumatic brain injury recovery. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. What is a life coach? And tell me a little about your background. Um, so my role as a life coach is to help optimize positivity while helping individuals meet their personal goals. So some of those will include using cognitive strategies, habits that they want to change, and then we kind of create a format to do that together. I've limited my work to strictly TBI survivors. I find a great joy in that, and it's definitely my area. Um, I've been in this field for 12 years. And I've learned that there aren't a lot of TBI life coaches out there. And so being in this field, it's really unique and it's a privilege because it's so limited. Now, at what stage of recovery do you step in and start working with a brain injury survivor and his or her family? Well, most of the time when I see people, they've already gone through a rehab facility. Some of them have even done in-home through like Casa Colina or even Hidden Valley Ranch. Mm -hmm. um, where I come in, usually it's years after that and family members are struggling or some of the strategies and tools they initially learned, they're not utilizing anymore. And it's almost, it's like a last hope are usually not working at this point. They're just kind of around their home. I'm looking at getting them out in the community and working on more volunteer placement. But the majority of the people I see don't have the insurance benefits for an inpatient treatment or something more complex. Just to clarify, these people have gone through more intensive rehab and rehab programs. They've gone back home and they've either stalled or they've gone backwards. So you'll step in so somebody's, let's say, floundering or they're stuck, they're not doing productive activities, they're not functioning well. So you come in and you want to tell me a little about a case or two of how you intervene? Certainly. So when I first meet someone, we go over um, a preference plan of things that they really like and, and working on how to get them in tune with that. So, for example, one individual I work with was actually in the military. He has been since discharged, but he was not diagnosed with a brain injury until last year, but he'd had the effects of the brain injury for the last four. So when I met him, I met him through a, a friend of mine. We did an assessment to kind of look at the areas that he wanted to improve. And then I create a special plan. So when we actually start our sessions together, we just take off running and we just kind of work toward those goals. So in this particular case, what sort of goals did you have for this survivor? Um, for him, it was more about socialization. You know, with the PTSD, he had a lot of different triggers. There were also plenty of different environments that created stimuli for him that was really scary and uncomfortable. So we worked on going on outings just to be comfortable around people. Um, I see. We would kind of position ourselves where he felt like there was an exit near the door or toward the back if he needed a minute just to kind of feel more comfortable. And then gradually we started to go into more crowded places, but he was using strategies like using earplugs for the noise and sunglasses for the light. It was really important for him because he also has children. He has two children. And mm -hmm. so when you're with your family and they want to interact and have fun, it was a situation where dad can't come. So it got to the point where he was able to actually go to an amusement park with his daughter 
and that was really special. Oh, he must have felt so good about that accomplishment. And, and it was yeah. nice to know that he was able to enjoy something with his family. He took some breaks while he was there, but there was a time where he wouldn't have been able to go at all. Your goal was to help him accomplish being in public places where it was either crowded or noisy, and where in the past he became so anxious that he wanted to avoid those places. And we worked on advocating for himself. A lot of times what happens is when you're a brain injury survivor, people speak for you, and they assume that they know what you need, even when it comes from the best place of being a spouse or a, a girlfriend or a family member. But he had a voice, and I think he found his voice through that experience as well. Well, that sounds good. So how did you help him become more assertive? We did a lot of role-playing. A lot okay. of Okay. And then, because the life coaching relationship establishes accountability as well, there were situations that I would put him in purposefully to see if he initiated a conversation. Um, he would have homework assignments where he would have to initiate following up on something that he needed, whether it was a medication or following up on a hobby. He really liked to build model planes. Mm -hmm. So if you can call the store and see if your parts in stock, you're initiating looking up that item. You're not just waiting for someone to say, I picked this up for you. You know, why don't you put it together? The two things that I heard you say is, first of all, you practice, you role play different scenarios that he might encounter in real life, and also you give him assignments to take initiative to accomplish tasks. Yes, sir. So how long did you work with this particular person? So we have the privilege of working together for about six months. With life coaching, the way that I've designed my program is that I offer my sessions and packages because there's going to be a consistency and a follow-through in order to implement what you're learning. If you have a life coach, they're not necessarily giving you advice, but they're helping you find solutions. It's okay if you don't have a specific direction because your life coach or my job as a life coach is to help you find what area you want to improve. You'll help him discover or come up with some goals that are mutually agreed upon and help him get help him reach those goals and overcome obstacles that might be in the way. Yes. Because a lot of times the goals aren't coming from the individual. It's a collaboration with their family as well and their immediate support. A lot of times with brain injury, people don't see the deficit, but the people around them do. So he may have some personal goals that he wants to accomplish, but working with the family to create the larger circle of everything they want to accomplish is what we work on together. You know, I suppose it's quite a challenge when the family has a goal and the patient is not aware of that particular deficit. If the motivation doesn't come from inside, it must be very hard to work on that goal. It is, and a lot of times there's a little give and take. It would be unethical to just work on something without their permission. Of course. Now, when we discuss these things, there's more of a mutual understanding that we're going to try it and see how it goes. And if he still feels that it's not for him or, you know, it's really not for you, because you know right away, then we're going to move on to something else. This just isn't the time. And Brianna, that's been my experience as well. If a person doesn't have an internal motivation, there's nothing I can say or do, persuade or nag or push to make them do it. They have to be ready. Absolutely. The two areas that you worked on with this particular person were helping him be more comfortable in public settings and also helping him speak up, be more assertive, and take more initiative. 
And it took you about six months to get to the place where you and he both wanted to be. Yes. Um, did he make the decision to stop, or did you, or was it a mutual decision? How did that work? It was kind of a mutual decision. Um, what I've learned with life coaching is that it's not long-term. Life coaching kind of addresses what you'd like to work on with some follow-up. It's not like a month's long. When I worked at um, the Center for Neuroskills, you know, individuals were there for years, and, and that was where they were. But with life coaching, it's really kind of coming in there, addressing the deficits, and then letting you resume your normal activities. Good. Well, so is there a range of time that you usually work with somebody? You mentioned in this case six months. Is it? What's the least and what's the most you work with patients? The shortest amount of time I've seen one individual is a month. Mm-hmm. So that's sessions in a month. Mm-hmm. And then the longest I've seen someone is three months, which is 12. But they just decided to renew. They added more sessions because they felt like he wanted some more support. How do you determine that, that the patient has made sufficient gains that are going to be maintained after you stop treating the patient? I really monitor consistency and also progress when we're together. I do a lot of the graphing and I, I chart a lot of like data. Mm-hmm. I feel like doing something that they've already mastered or they're starting to plateau on it, that's when we look at what other areas we could explore. His time is valuable and knowing that they only have a limited amount of sessions, you really just want to make sure that you can address all of their concerns without falling into like that comfortable it's not really a rut, but it's that comfortable place where you're not moving forward and you're just kind of in the same area. And Mm -hmm. one of Mm -hmm. my jobs is to get you out of your comfort zone and Mm -hmm. to address things that are uncomfortable in a comfortable way. What about after you stop working with somebody and they encounter a challenge in life or roadblock and there's some regression, do they ever come back and call you for a tune-up or how does that work? experienced that yet however mm-hmm. um, the way we leave it after a session has ended um, they have all of my contact information they keep all of their strategies all the materials that we formulated come together and it's in a binder so anything that they want to refer to um, they're more than welcome to but then you know I'm always happy to hear from people and see how they're doing in this particular instance because I am friends with the family through another friend, I hear about his progress, even though I don't see him. He's doing very well. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Now, do you always meet face-to-face, or do you do video conferencing or telephone? It's a blend of both, because I am mm-hmm. mobile. So I will travel anywhere in San Diego County to provide services to someone, whether it's in their home mm-hmm. um, or via Skype. Any other cases you want to describe to me? I was just thinking of an, another one. This individual is younger, and he was actually injured from birth. When he was born, there were some um, technical problems with some of the monitors in the mm. ICU he was, and that created a long-lasting injury. So even though he's in his 30s, he appears as though he hasn't aged past maybe like an adolescent. So there's some more. there are some different behaviors and, and different uh, mannerisms that you would see that you wouldn't normally see with someone his age. So what sort of problems did you focus on in your work together? Tantrums was a really big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a really difficult time learning no when the family would let him know that he couldn't have something or if he was out in the community and he wanted something very impulsive 
and that it almost um, deterred further outings with the family. They decided they couldn't handle the behavior and they just didn't want him to come anymore. Um, so we started shopping and doing little outings, just kind of one-on-one. There was a goal for a time frame to stay out. Um, so, you know, the first goal was like a half hour. The mm-hmm. second goal was, you know, let's go a half hour and let's try to find two items. You just kind of gradually build. But there was also a behavior modification program that we put in place where there was a reward system that he earned something he enjoyed from his family for participating in a positive way in these other activities really seemed to help. So he was rewarded for good behavior. Yes, indeed. Now, let's say you were out with him and he started to have a temper tantrum. How did you intervene? We had a phrase. There was a word. And then we even limited that to a gesture because he felt like, you know, if we're out in the community, people are going to catch on to the facts. You know, there was never any um, labeling or any badges. You know, I would look just like anyone else would look because I don't want to put him in a position where I'm drawing attention to him or his needs. You were trying to avoid publicly shaming him. Absolutely. You know, if, if we're trying to make someone feel better, um, pointing out their flaws in front of people is not the way to do it. Right. With him, um, we would take a few minutes and we would go back to the car or we'd find like someplace off to the side just to kind of gather. And what I noticed with him is that when he would get really frustrated, um, he would want water. And so we started bringing a bottle of water and when he felt nervous or he felt anxious, he would take a sip of water and then it seemed to help him feel better. Good. So he could sort of regroup, reconstitute, and then get back on track. So there was a gesture that said, hey, let's let's take a break and regroup here. Okay, great. And how did you know when you were done working with him? Was it an objective indicator like... Uh, uh, the frequency of outbursts or temper tantrums was below a certain level, or how did you determine the end point? So for him, it was a mixture of things. We were trying to decrease harmful behaviors because he was physically aggressive. Um, so once we started to see some of those physical behaviors diminish, um, we also started to look at what the family outcome goal was. This was a family that was financially limited. so. We knew coming into it that we didn't have a lot of time, so we had to work a little faster. Sometimes when I meet a client, they don't know how they're going to respond to it, or the family kind of has some reservations, and then once they start seeing the progress, they want to keep going. But there are others where we know right away coming in that we only have them for eight sessions, and Mm -hmm. that's really have to look at how you schedule those and how you spread out their time to make sure that they're getting the most that they can from being That's a real challenge. Do you ever do any videotaping? You talk about role-playing, so I'm wondering uh, how they remember what to say and how to deliver the message. I haven't videotaped. Um, I really like that suggestion. I have taken photos. So for individuals who were working on, how do I say, um, like grip and pinch or any other home exercise program, they'll have a list of worksheets for me with detailed instructions. But then as they do the exercise, I take a photo of them doing it. So if it's something where someone's donning an AFO or some kind of um, hand modality for splinting, Mm -hmm. There's a photo of them with it on their hand so they can connect that this is something that they did do 
and it's also a reference if they're unsure of how to apply it. Right, so they can have a manual or a notebook with these documents to remind them how to do the particular activity. Yes. I really value uh, a lot of those apps out there that are really good for cognitive training and any app that we're using, it's also something that we install on their phone or their tablet. So it's something that they can continue to work on and then when we see each other again, I'm able to look at their progress and see how they did. Which apps in particular do you find useful? So I really love NeuroNation and I also really love Lumosity. They're great. Okay. And they, they have a really fun way of doing challenging things. Mm -hmm. And I really just appreciate the feedback and the data that you can collect. Each little section of the test is only a few minutes and it's monitored with a check or an X if the answer is correct or incorrect. But it's playful enough where you don't mm -hmm. feel like it's work. And it's just short enough where if you feel like you're getting frustrated, we can try it again or we can come up with another another activity that kind of reaches the same goal. Brianna, looking back on your work with brain injury survivors, tell me what some of the biggest challenges have been. You know, I, I'd have to say for the individuals I meet who don't have a lot of resources in their area, mm -hmm. that's the hardest. Um, I have a a social media page where I promote um, my company and I just post facts about the brain and I received a call from an individual not in California who really was kind of in a situation where there was nothing immediately around her related to brain injury or therapy. For her it was over a two-hour drive to the nearest place because she is also the caregiver for the inquiring about um, there was no way for her to get there and there was no one to come to her so you kind of reach that point where you wonder how much help you can give without resources in the nearby surrounding areas it really increases the challenge but is there something you could do remotely even by phone to coach a family member we ended up doing a little bit of coaching just for her she was at the point because she had been struggling to find assistance for so long. And then as a caregiver, you do get fatigued and it is a lot of work. And it was more for her peace of mind just to have a way to un unleash and, and to vent. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think we put a lot on care providers. We often forget that they're neglected too. We sure do. So you're saying that, that even if you're not physically able to meet with the patient and the family, you might be able to offer some assistance by phone. Yes, indeed. We actually emailed the surrounding areas for other resources, and they found one, I want to say it was like 45 minutes away, because she just happened to be in Oklahoma. Oh. Um, it wasn't the Brain Injury Association, but it was a surrounding area where people would come together and do activities, and mm -hmm. sometimes they would have special events, you know, like once or twice a week. There's some type of social activities, social support. You know, I, I think that's one of the hardest things. You feel like you're alone and then you can't find resources and it's even harder. But when you're able to establish a support system, even someone to talk to is more than you have. So what advice do you have for brain injury survivors and their families? So for brain injury survivors, I would definitely advise looking up local resources. 
but also asking questions. There is a time where there's a lot of information coming at you and you're just kind of taking it all in and it can be overwhelming. And then before you know it, it's confusing and then you didn't ask your question. We want to hear what you have to say. Medical professionals working with your loved ones want to hear what you have to say. You are the expert on that person. And as the brain injury survivor, you are the expert on yourself. And so please don't feel you have to hold anything back or that, that your, your words don't matter or you're not being heard. We, we want to hear from you. Um, who better than to tell us how to work with you than you? What about any advice for, for healthcare treaters who work with brain injury survivors? For healthcare treaters, I would say um, really value your team. Um, everybody that works with you has the same goal in regards to that individual or, or the population. And it's, it's really to help them get better. So if, if you have an idea about how to do something and you're not sure how to implement it, or maybe um, you're not sure how to implement something and you need that kind of constructive feedback, um, definitely utilize um, your peers. It's, it's amazing how many ideas come to you when you're collaborating in a group versus when you're just stuck on your own and then you can't move forward and neither can your patient. It's useful to, to take advantage of, of support and advice from others who've been through it as well. Absolutely. Anything else you want to add? I just wanted to say that um, doing this job has been so rewarding and so fulfilling. And you don't realize how much it affects you personally. You hear stories about individuals who they got the call that something happened to their loved one and then next months are just hospital visits and medical appointments and outpatient therapies or other places like that and it just seems like until it happens to you, you kind of miss the significance. And so for me, I didn't know that working in this population would prepare me for my own experience when my father had his TBI oh. in 2015. And so then, you know, the tables were kind of turned because instead of hearing about someone's story when they found out their father had a stroke, it was my father. We were in the mm. hospital. My mom was literally sleeping at the hospital around the clock. She had her notebook of everything she wrote down from what the doctors would say to try to make it make sense later because you're exhausted. So you've lived through this yourself personally. Yes, I have. And I want to thank you for spending the time and effort to talk with me today. Please like, subscribe, and comment.